Scripture for this morning's lesson is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and counsel one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I need to make a confession this morning. I, Toby Levering, am a perfectionist. That didn't seem quite right. Hold on just a second. I need to make a confession to you this morning. I, Toby Levering, am a perfectionist. Uh, That wasn't quite right either. Well, if you understand what it is to be a perfectionist, what it is to want everything just so, you understand what it is to be kind of like me. My fellow type A's can complete this sentence, a place for everything and everything in its place. Testify, testify, you free spirits, you don't care. You're still coloring the handout, you're not paying attention. That is probably, truthfully, if I can be honest with you, what makes preaching so hard. It is not the exposition of the word. I enjoy the study. It is not the homiletical delivery. That doesn't bother me. It is the very interesting reactions you get from one sermon heard by 700 people. You would think that they all heard the same thing. You would think that they all got the same points. You would think that they all paid attention to the same things. In fact, that's not true. Not true at all. Uh, I'll go ahead and give you a little insight into any of this. Um, Sometimes I will preach a message And someone will say, boy, Toby, I just, I appreciate that you have taken the tie off. I appreciate that you are dressing down just a little bit. We're not quite so formal, just taking the stiffness out of it. That is so helpful and kind. And I say, thank you, and I appreciate that. And then some other people will say, you know, Toby, I love your sermons. It's just great. But will you please put on a tie? You are not a youth minister anymore. Look right here. It's in the Bible. Jesus wore a tie. Second Opinions, chapter 1. Some say, you know, Toby, I love your visuals. 
They are so helpful to me. Your object lessons. My kids, when they're sitting beside me, they sit up and they pay attention. They're engaged in the sermon. I appreciate that so much. Some people say enough with the visual aids. You look here in this Bible and you find me one place where Jesus ever told a story. Or used a visual aid. And Jesus didn't think stuff was funny. And I accept that and I say thank you. I kind of get this twitch in my eye. Christy says, how's it going? I say, I'm going to go lie down. I'm going to go have a stroke <laughs> because I'm a perfectionist, you see, and I want to get it right. And this is what drives perfectionists crazy. Now, open your Bibles to a verse. And if you're a type A, you're going to hate this verse. Matthew 5, verse 48. Now, we're going to look at it. Just drop into the verse But this verse drives us perfectionists absolutely crazy. The verse is very simple. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there is no debating the simplicity of that verse. But if you're a perfectionist, this keeps you up at night. Because you can't do it. You can't. So what did Jesus mean when he said, be perfect? Well, anytime we're looking at a verse in Scripture and it says something that we don't understand, one of the most helpful things we do, in fact, this is pretty much what Know Your Bible does all the time. People ask us about a verse and we look at the context. So that's what we're going to do. Back up to verse 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. You see what he's talking about there is love. It is easy to love people who who love you no matter what. I mean, honestly, when I get up and preach, I know that there's 10 percent of the of the crowd of the audience that no matter what I do, they will love it. I could burn the building down and people these people would come up to me afterwards and say that was such a moving illustration. I have never moved so much in my life. And for once I went to church and I wasn't cold. Thank you. Thank you, Toby, for that moving illustration. I appreciate it. It's easy to love the people who love you. It's hard to love people who don't love you. And it's even harder to love people who are against you. 
There's another 10% of the crowd that I could preach the best sermon in the world. Everybody in the audience who is not baptized gets baptized. Everybody who's been baptized decided they need to be re-baptized. And they'll be the ones sitting there thinking, sure is taking a while. And hurry this up. It's easy to love those who love you. It's harder to love those who don't. And so when Jesus says be perfect, he's talking about the unusual kind of love that Christians ought to have. Not just loving people who look like us and act like us and dress like us and talk like us, but loving people who don't know a thing about us, whose complete worldview is totally different. The word there, perfect, the Greek is teleos. And that word simply means, per, uh, besides perfect, it can also mean complete. It can also mean fully mature, fully developed. If you're a student and you, you achieve your doctorate level, you get your doctorate degree, that's teleos, that's perfection, that's attaining to the highest level. If you're an athlete and you end up getting to play in the NBA or, or professional ball, baseball players, you have arrived to the highest level. It doesn't mean you're perfect in the sense that you don't make mistakes. It means you're perfect in that you're at the highest level you can go. And that is the love that Jesus calls us to as the body of Christ. I fear many churches love easily those who look like them and act like them and talk like them and walk like them and believe like them. But it is not perfection. It is not the thing which Jesus called us to. What Jesus calls us to is to love people who don't agree with us. Love people who don't believe in God. Love people who are even against us. And that's harder. Now, you know the great commandment, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. And there it reads, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They're the most important ones. And we understand that. The problem is that we, in our language, use love for so many different things. For example, I could say to you, I love my wife. She makes me a better man. She encourages me. She loves me when I'm unlovable. She is God's helper to me. She makes me better than I would be by myself. I love her. I can also say I love Chick-fil-A. Delicious, plump, juicy chicken sandwiches. Perfectly cooked waffle fries. Now, when those two loves are very, very different, but man, they are close. 
We understand that that can be confusing sometimes. What Jesus is talking about when we talk about loving our neighbor and loving the Lord is a choice, a deliberate choice to love something more than and exceeding our own self, our own desires, our own wishes and wants. There are 611 commands by some counts in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets combined. And Galatians chapter 5 verse 14 says the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that sounds easy, but when you put it into practice, it becomes much, much more difficult. And so as a result, we have backed off loving in action, and we have made love an intellectual exercise. And we study the meaning of the word agape, and we go into a deeply rational, intellectual understanding of what love is. And there's nothing wrong with a rational thinking approach, but if you want to love somebody, you got to move. you got to act. You've got to make something happen. I am horrible at playing games. Not that I'm horrible. I'm actually pretty good at it. But you just don't want to play games with me. Uh, one of our favorites is Monopoly. But I like others, chess and checkers, but card games, any sorts of games. This is what happens. I read the rules. I analyze them. I think about the proper way to do it. When we start playing... I think about my move, and not just about my move, but about every potential move I could make, and how that might affect the other players, and where their standing is in the game. And what this leads to is everyone else around the table sighing loudly, and saying, Toby, just go! And I think sometimes God is like that with his church. He wants us to, to do and to act and to move. And we just sit there, we study love, and we think about love, and we sing about love, and we talk about love. But love is an action. Love is a verb. It requires us to do. And that means it's going, we're going to have to do things that are difficult and scary and hard. But it's what the Great Commission, I'm sorry, the Great Commandment calls us to do. Listen. To me now. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 there describes a good church. Now, Jesus at the beginning of Revelation, this is kind of cool because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you have a red letter version of the Bible, it's all red, right? And then it kind of stops being read about Acts, about the first part of Acts. We don't hear any direct words from Jesus. All the way until the end of the book. And John records these words of Jesus and he specifically addresses them to seven churches to whom John was writing. And he kind of gives each of them a a report card. Now, I want you to focus. It'd be lovely to go through every single church. But I want you to look just at the uh, church at Ephesus starting in verse 2 of chapter 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate Wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Good church. Good church did good things. 
We study the the, uh, book of Ephesians, and we can know that these were not shallow, fair-weather Christians. These were committed followers of Christ who wanted to do what was right, who wanted to know what was right, who wanted to believe what was right. But look what Jesus says, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. You see, it's easy to be an active church. It's easy to be a friendly church. It's easy to have a lot of ministries and do so many good things. But just as easily can your first love also slip away. Have you seen marriages like this? Where a husband and wife claim to love each other, but there is no more spark. And they go through the motions And they do what they're supposed to do. But both of them, you can just tell, have lost their first love. That first date that they had. The time when they came to the altar and professed their love for one another. This was the church at Ephesus. They were doing so many good things, but they were probably doing them with the wrong motives. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13, which would be remiss if we didn't talk about love as it relates to unity. And talk here about what Paul said to the church at Corinth. We're gonna, the whole chapter is good, but we really just want to focus on the first few verses. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. You can't be about good works Without the right motives. It's not enough just to just to do good. You have to do good for the right reasons. And so I know you want to act. I know you want to do. But you have to be motivated in the right way. Because love will drive you to things that are not easy. This leads us to the great. Sorry. Commission. Love all. And we read from the Great Commission, but the verse I put up there is not that verse. The verse I put up there is 1 John chapter 4, 19, which says very simply, We love because He first loved us. In most churches today, the Great Commission has become the Great Omission. We have left it out. We have excused ourselves from seeking and saving the lost because we're not good at it, because we're not gifted at it, because it's not our calling. Not about that at all. Mm -mm. If you love God, you have to love the people which God loves. There is a world going to hell 
and we're comfortable with that. We have become too complacent with being saved and being protected and not inviting us, anyone else in. I was, as I was thinking about this point, I thought about the movie Titanic, which I would not fully recommend. But there is this scene in the Titanic when all the people who have gotten on the lifeboats have gotten on and they've gotten out away, a little bit away from the ship and the ship has gone completely down under. Now everyone's in the water. There are people hollering and screaming for their lives who are slowly suffering and will die of hypothermia in a matter of minutes. And those who are in the lifeboats, in the half-filled lifeboats, sit and they wait. And there's a lady in one of the lifeboats. She says, let's head back. Let's get some of them. She said, and they say, no, 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 no. If we do that, they'll overtake the boat. She said, I don't understand a one of you. You're just sitting there. We have got room to save more people and we do not. Why is that? That's a love problem. There's no program that's going to make that better. There's no deacon of evangelism as much as I love Cole Douglas. There's, he's not going to fix that. You have to get to the heart of the matter. If you're not reaching people for Jesus, you've got a heart problem. You've got a love problem. Now, there's a lot of abilities that you can bring to it. You can do it in a lot of ways. But if you are not reaching the lost for Christ, you do not love people. How selfish and small do you have to be to be so concerned about your comfort in the lifeboat that you're not doing the thing of which the lifeboat is there for? To rescue and save the souls of men. We love because he first loved us. You say, what about those people? They're not worthy. They haven't repented. Were you worthy? Were you perfect? Were you exactly where Christ wanted you to be when you became a Christian? God, forgive us. This is why in Galatians 5.22, when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, the first fruit of all the fruits is love. If we have not love, we lose everything. I cringe when we talk about us versus the world. Because I have some people that I love that are still in the world. That are not in the lifeboat and we just divide. We say, well, it's just the world. It's just the way the world's going to be. No, I, I want them to be saved. I want them to come to Christ. I want them to know Christ. Forgive us when we become derelict in our duty to seek and save the lost. But it starts with love. A decade ago, I had a, a project that I asked for some help with. I asked my brother... To attend Northside. It was on a Sunday I wouldn't be there. The Sunday I was at teen camp. And I asked him to give me his perspective as an outsider. As an unchurched person. I don't think that's an unfair uh, characterization. He is probably at best agnostic. So I said, I want you to come to Northside. I want you to come for class. I want you to come for worship. And I want you to tell me about your experience. This is what he wrote. Let me start just at the very beginning. I arrived at 9.07 for morning services. I had the same clothes on that I did the day before, although I think they were clean enough. Despite it being a few minutes late, I saw some other stragglers around the hallways, so I didn't feel too bad. There was very little eye contact with me upon my arrival. Though, for the record, I never went out of my way at any time to meet anyone. 
I got a drink of water, looked through the auditorium doors, and proceeded to try to find my way around. By mistake, I wandered into the preschool, the children's area, and wandered around there before figuring out I was in the wrong area. It was around five minutes, which seemed like an eternity at the time, before I was introduced by a man whose name was Justin Abraham. He asked me about me and how I had found the church and what my name was. I thought he was very nice. Justin explained my options concerning morning class and explained that the youth group was away on a trip. He left the choice of classes up to me, so I chose simply to sit in the auditorium, which was already underway. I went through class, and after class, there was just enough time between classes for everyone to gather. And the morning sermon session started promptly, which I was glad about. In the morning class, I sat in the center on the next to the back row. After class, I instinctively moved over to the left side of the auditorium in the middle row on the end. I was neither neither noticed to or spoken to during that interim. That's fine, though, as everyone was finding seats and gathering their families. One member of the congregation, sitting a couple of rows ahead of me, did turn and wave and smile. Things went normally from that point, singing, standing, sitting, the cracker, the grape juice, the money. I gave a dollar. And the sermon was good as well. After worship was all said and done, Ron Dossie, who was sitting behind me, tapped me on the shoulder and made conversation. He introduced me to his son, and they both welcomed me to the church. They were very polite, and for the first time that morning, they made me feel glad to be at church. Justin did mention the luncheon during our visit earlier, and so after a slow mosey out of the auditorium, I made my way to the lunchroom. I did linger in the hall, and despite a couple of smiles from passers-by, I felt highly invisible. At the luncheon... I introduced myself to a group of mostly church members and reluctantly took my place at the head of the line. As far as I could tell, nearly everyone but myself and one other person was a member. And they pretty much sat in their groups, as I imagine they do every Sunday. One of the greeters sat next to me and was polite. But there was an elderly gentleman across the table who didn't even acknowledge my presence. In the evening, I attended with my friend Amanda, who happened to be in town visiting. We came through the front doors at 555 and were greeted with handshakes and smiles. I took her to the bulletin board with your picture on it. Bill Rausch greeted us within 30 seconds of stepping in. He was very pleasant and made us feel welcome and spoke very highly of you. Thanks, Bill. Anyway, we sat back in the back row in the middle, incidentally right behind Ron Dossie. He recognized me by name and again was quite friendly. Well, he goes on at much more detail than I have time to give. But I wanted to share that to ask you this. When someone comes in who is not of us, 
Who are you in that story? Are you the smile passerby? Are you the one who ignores? Are you the one who stays in your own circle? Or are you the Ron Dossie? Or the Justin Abraham? Who are you? Let what we do be motivated in love. This is our last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14. Paul writes this, Let all you do be done in love. Let all you do be done in love. Now, Colossians chapter 3 was read for us by Dale, and I appreciate that. In the verses after Colossians of 3, he says verse, in verse 14 that love binds it all together in perfect unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 15, through chapter 4, verse 6, and he, he over and over again emphasizes how deeply and how impactfully love will change everything we do. It will impact our teaching. It will impact our worship. It will impact our day-to-day worship, the Monday through Saturday. It will, it will uh, lead us to better marriages. It will make us better parents. We'll be better bosses or be better employees. We'll have a stronger, more intimate, sincere prayer life. We'll talk like a Christian. We'll actually, believe it or not, actually pretend like we like people. Love is what ties it all together. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter writes, Love covers a multitude of sins. And I love that verse because it reminds me that when we come to the body of Christ, we're a group of people who are not perfect in our lives. We've all stumbled. We've all made mistakes. But we strive. I, I pray that we strive to be perfect in our love. Not just to love people that love us back, not just to love people that we're comfortable with, but to love people that we don't even know. That love covers a multitude of sins. In my former job, the teens and I had a tradition. We would write in these journals We would do it about once a month, although we weren't as, sometimes we missed a few more than we should. And the rule on the journals was I would give them a single question to answer. And they would, I would just ask for them to write their answer honestly. And sometimes I would get a few sentences, sometimes I would get a few pages. But some of the best, most compelling stuff I've ever read came out of these journals. I made a deal with him. I said, I'll be the only one that reads it between you and me. It's kind of like old fashioned texting. It's like texting 80s style. So when I would read what they had wrote, I would pray over it. And I would ask God to give me the right way to respond. And sometimes that was an easy response. And sometimes I had to write things that I knew they probably didn't want to hear at that time. But I started the habit after every single entry, no matter what the entry was, after I wrote what I wrote, 
I would finish by writing three simple words. What are they, teens? Oh, good. Let's try it again. What are the three words that I wrote at the end of every single journal entry? You are loved. Because they need to know that no matter what they do, no matter what they do, God still loves them. God still sent Jesus to die for them. We need to be like that in the church. We need to be a church that loves people when they've done some pretty bad things. Loves people who are hard to, to love. And love people who aren't exactly where they need to be just yet. Let's finish with this verse, then an illustration, then we're done. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 24 and following. Now I need to tell you that these verses have been abused. Oh, they have been abused. Follow me here. Try to ignore what you've heard before and just... Focus on the words. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. I've heard that verse twisted in in some bad ways. The writer of Hebrews was compelling us then to meet together to stir us up toward love and good deeds. You should leave worship being more compelled to love the lost, being more compelled to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, and being more compelled to show that love in action. Let us stir one another up toward love and good deeds. And I'm not sure how exactly that sometimes we'll meet in here. Sometimes we meet in small groups. Sometimes we meet at family camp. Sometimes we meet at team camp. But wherever we meet, we ought to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And he says, not forsaking, do not uh, let us not give up meeting together. Now, some people got way too focused on the meeting and forgot that the, the point was to be together. It's about the assemblers, not necessarily the assembly. It's about the meters, the people who are meeting together. It's the people, not the place in which you would do it. And may every time we meet, may that love permeate all that we do and all that we are. Now, I know today, of all days, is a game day. I know we're all wearing our colors But love should even permeate how you play the game. I want to share with you this illustration about the Gainesville Tornadoes. If you're a fan of high school basketball, you're not alone. But if you're a fan of the Gainesville Tornadoes in Gainesville, Texas, then you are alone. Usually our fan base was close to zero. My parents came... uh, one game, but they didn't come to the other ones because they didn't have time. The other students at Gainesville don't come to the games either, mostly because they can't get out. This is a juvenile correction facility for felony offenders. And one of the few perks here for very good behavior 
is a chance to leave the prison a few times a year to play basketball. They play against private schools like Vanguard College Prep in Waco. And it was before that recent matchup that two Vanguard players announced they weren't going to play against a team with no fans. No one likes playing in an empty gym. But isn't that supposed to be a good thing for you? You don't have the other fans cheering against you? I guess, but it just seems weird, you know? It just didn't seem right. So, before their home game against Gainesville, Hudson Bradley and Ben Martinson asked some of the Vanguard fans for a favor. To cheer for Gainesville instead. The Gainesville players had no idea what was happening. They walked onto the court to find their own signs of support, their own cheerleaders, even their own fan section. Half the crowd was assigned to cheer for Gainesville. And then as it went on, everybody just kind of got so into it. Nobody was cheering everyone, for you. <laughs> everyone was cheering for them. I mean, every time they scored, the gym was just lit up with cheering and clapping, and everyone was on their feet. This is not what I've ever seen sports be. I think in a way, this is kind of how sports should be. It, it just kind of showed me the real impact that encouragement and support for anybody can make. Hudson says we all need someone to believe in us. We all need someone who knows our mistakes and loves us anyway. And for that, the Gainesville players can't thank those boys enough. It's something I won't forget. When I'm old man, I'm just going to think about this. I remember this for the rest of my life. And finally, as for who won the game, well, obviously they didn't care. So why should we? Some of you were convicted by that story. Some of you were upset by that story. Oh, this is just a culture that gives everyone a trophy. Thought about that. You know, I, I'm not much of a sports guy or extremely competitive, but grace is giving everyone a trophy. If you get into heaven, it's only because it's a gift. You didn't earn it or deserve it. And that's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for the students at Gainesville. All of us need his grace. All of us need his love. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response if God is for us? And who can be against us? God is for you. Even before you were for you, God was for you. And he wants you to win. And the only way to win is in Christ. And if you don't know him, if you have not put him on, please come. Our elders await you, or if you have any other need, Please come as we stand and sing.